This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. All right, welcome to another episode. Sitting down today with Tony Grevin. Tony is a baker in North Adelaide. Uh, running the bakery on O'Connell Street. Um, we've known each other for quite a while, but we lost touch and we've got back in touch again, which has been really good. Um, but the thing is, this time around, actually catching up with you, Tony, I'm learning so much. Um, now, you have a really big business, lots of staff, and yet you play golf twice a week. I find that absolutely amazing. And every time I ring you, you know where these really busy, successful entrepreneurial people they never answer their phone. You can never get through. Every time I ring you, you always pick up. Uh, you're very lucky then. Uh, no, I do try to pick it up. I do like to solve problems straight away or get onto a situation and move on to the next situation. So that's probably why I do. Okay, well, let, we'll come back to that later. Let's go back to – whereabouts did you go to school? Uh, I went to high school at Strathmon High School, which is being demolished now. For, we lived up at Fairview Park, and for some reason, my mum wanted me to go there. It was a uh, technical school, so um, I'm from a line of tradies. My car- father was an electrician. My grandfather was a uh, carpenter. I ended up being – I did 15 or 16 years of bricklaying, so working with my hands has always been in the family. Okay. The bricklaying, I, I find this story just so interesting. So – Straight out of school, did you get to, did you, year 11, 12? I started two weeks of year 12 and then I got offered the bricklaying job. I actually went back to school for one week while I, before I started the job and I thought, why am I at school? I'm starting work next week. But you're, you're a really smart guy. Like, were you not getting good grades or you weren't doing homework or you're playing? I just didn't like school. Didn't I get just, along with the teachers. Yeah, no, I like making money. I used to make and repair pallets at PGH from when I was about or 13, 14 years old after school every night. So, so, but what did that look like? You'd go into the shed with some wood. Yeah, a nail gun. And uh, eventually I was just left on my own there because I was pretty good at it. And the guy used to stack bricks on pallets there and after work he would make and repair the pallets. And after a while he just let me do it and uh, then he'd just come out and, uh, yeah. And then eventually in the end... Uh, he paid me per pallet, so I was like subcontracting to him. To how much was it? How much did you get paid for a pallet? Um, I think I was getting a dollar a pallet. How long would it take you? Well, we used to make brand new ones and used to do uh, repairs, but a repair would take a couple of minutes. A brand new one, you'd get you'd do one in about two minutes. You just so the dollar for a repair and how oh, much I think for it was a about new? A, yeah, well, I used to get two dollars fifty an hour. I think we used to get fifty cents for a repair and a dollar for a new one. So we used to. Just to smash it out. Yeah. So let's just unpack that a bit. So who put this hard-working ethic into your mindset? Um, was it mum or well, dad? Both parents and my grandfather. Uh, everyone's been in my family's all good hard workers. So um, was was mum working? Yeah, mum was working. She was a manager of the police club in the city. Dad was an electrician. Mum also used to work in fish and chip shops. Uh, fruit and veg stores she's pretty well worked all my life when I was 
growing up. So when you'd get home from school, she wouldn't often be there. You'd no, Dad would cook, and Dad would always cook every night. Be a meat, one type of meat and two veg. It used to be. We go. So what are we having tonight? Was it potatoes and peas or carrots and broccoli? But it would be one meat and two veg every were, night. Were they careful with money? Uh, yes, very. They were very careful with money. And they taught you to be careful. Yeah, yeah. They taught me. Uh, I was. I used to be really, really tight with money when I was younger. Uh, mum used to give because mum was working all the time. She used to give us. I can't remember how much. I think it was like two dollars a day for lunch, so that she didn't have to make lunch. And I never used to spend it. I used to save that $2 a day and I'd just... Skip lunch. I'd, well, skip lunch or buy something really cheap like a roll and a packet of twisties and throw the twisties inside the roll and, yeah, just to save money, yeah. How many kids? <laughs> two. I've got a son who's 19. No, sorry. Oh. Your, how many brothers and sisters oh, have got you got? two sisters, one older, one younger. Are you close with them? Oh, hang on. Yeah, I know. Yes, of course. Catherine. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, you are close. But I don't know about the other sister, though. Belinda, yep. She just lives in just a couple of streets away from us. So. so it's all pretty still close. Yeah, it's good. That's great. All right. So um, was mum disappointed when you accepted the offer to become a, an apprentice bricklayer? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, she was over the – both parents were over the moon. Um, I mean, that's why I went to a technical school. They thought I was going to be a tradie, so – and I was, so. I think, actually, if I would have ended up going to my school, I would have been a tradie. So I can relate to this bricklayer thing, and I think I probably would have ended up as a bricklayer or something like that. Okay, that's really interesting. Tell us about who your boss was and what he expected of you when you started. I oh, see, I did it through the Master Builders Association, who basically rented us out to different subcontractors. And I had this one guy, his name was Moe Tat. He was the toughest meanest dude that you could imagine if i was i mean you'd never get away with it in today's society like if um my hands were empty i had to run so if i uh, the first year of your apprenticeship you're just doing laboring so if i had a wheelbarrow if the wheelbarrow was empty i had to run with it back to the cement mixer if it was full i could walk same with if i was carrying planks or scaffolding if my hands were full i could walk but if they weren't i had to run and that was all day, every day. Did you think this was... Sorry, was he the first person that you went to? Yes. And how many years did you stay with him? I was only probably 18 months with him. Okay, because you, you couldn't last. I couldn't handle it. I it was too hard. Because I wasn't laying any bricks. And then one day I complained to the Master Builders Association. I said, I have not laid one brick. So they got me on a warehouse, a commercial warehouse. It would have been, oh, you'd have to say, three or four stories high up on this gable where the carpenter had knocked a piece of brick off right at the top of the point of the gable and they had me on the roof on top of a ladder replacing one brick and then he said when I got down I was crapping myself because I don't like really high heights anyway and he said you ever complain again you won't be you've already laid a brick so no more complaining again sort of stuff you know but this was the second guy this wasn't the no, first no this is Moe Tat oh Moe because yeah. you made the complaint I made the complaint so and I stayed with them still stayed with oh them. and this was payback yeah this is say... payback for complaining <laughs> <laughs> okay can you tell us the story about when he used to clap his hands oh yeah um, so you'd have to we worked at the outlet prison putting an extension on there and I had to throw bricks up on the scaffolding whether it be to the second floor or the third floor and I had to throw him up that fast that if he could clap between when he caught the brick, between catching bricks, if he, he would clap. He said, if I can clap, 
you're going too slow. So I would have to throw them up as fast as I could, which was... So you're throwing bricks up two stories high. Yeah. And he wouldn't... I'd imagine that had to be within 30 centimetres yeah, yeah, where his hands... Yeah, you get good at throwing them up, yeah. Okay, and, and if you could clap his if hands... If he could clap in he between, would be angry. he'd be screaming at you to go faster. He'd be getting angry with you. Yeah. Was this putting... Well, I didn't... I like to push myself back then. So, I mean, I think that for me, you know, I mean, I know it's cruel or whatever, but it taught me how to push myself, like really push myself to the how fast I can actually go so that when I finished my apprenticeship and worked out on my own, I could actually work really hard and lay a lot of bricks and make really good money. So it was good in that sense. I'm interested in this guy. Like, did he have a massive turnover of staff if the, the rules were so well, hard? Well, was just the supervisor for a... Um, for the contractor. So, yeah. Um, but but you loved him in the end. Oh, I don't know about... I think... I don't know if I loved him. I did... He was a hard worker too. Like, he led from the big... He led from the front, you know what I mean? It wasn't like he was lazy. So He you, was a very hard worker too. So you had sort of a, the mutual respect for him because he was working just as hard as you were expected to yeah. and all of his other guys on the site were as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. I can, I can relate to that because I, I had a boss that you know, had similar standards. And I, I walked away from that, even though I sort of burnt myself out on it. Um, there was so much to take away into your next career. I mean, maybe you're not working at that 120% capacity, which is just not sustainable. You might be working at 80 or 90, but you've there's so many um, takeaways that you learn from these clever people. Was he successful financially, Moe? Uh No, but his boss was. <laughs> no, he was just a very good hard worker. Um, and then there was also a story about when you had to so uh, you actually laid your first line of bricks and you had to do it at a hell of a pace. Can you tell us about that? Oh, no, that was was that, that was in the next guys that I went with. Um, they had a bricklayer who they used to stir up all the time and uh, this was in North Adelaide. Um, we were building like big townhouses and uh, the party wall in the middle, uh, they had the bricklayer at one end, me at the other, and they had bets on to see who could lay the most bricks in a half an hour. Um, we laid a thousand bricks in just under an hour between the two of us and the wall and uh, the wall just looked awful. It looked, you know, I, I, my eyes couldn't keep up with how fast my hand was working. I couldn't turn my head backwards and forwards from the brick to the, the string line to the brick style of bricks, the string. I was just going that quick. And uh, the actual builder come around just after we finished it and all the other bricklayers were hitting the walls with the levels trying to straighten it up and it was moving all over the place. And the builder wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> but you proved the point. That was your initiation into actually laying bricks. Yeah. And you you met the challenge and then they kept you on laying bricks after that? Yeah, I stayed with those guys pretty well to the end. Um, they taught me how to lay bricks properly and uh, I was their labourer. It was only... A, at that stage, it was a two-man gang that grew to about 10. But at that stage, it was uh, when we first started with them, they, uh, it was just a two-man gang. And I would like, I would mix up all the mortar, do all their labouring, and they said, as soon as you finish all that, you can start laying bricks. So I knew how to work hard and fast. So I got them sorted, organised, got all their bricks and mortar, and then I'd be on a, a nice little wall laying bricks myself. So you'd have to do your job, plus then they'd let you do some, some of their job. I'll have to do their job for them and then I could do, I could lay bricks. So. <laughs> That's incredible. And did you save up and give yourself any treats 
in this time because I imagine you're doing uh, a lot of work. Do you buy any nice cars or any nice uh, toys? No, it was all cars were a, a liability. Really? And I just I only ever went down in value, so I just always had crappy cars. What was your first car? Uh, mind you, the HP Trainer, which I'd paid for when making repairing pallets. I had when I was sixteen. The day I turned sixteen, I had a car. I uh, paid cash for it, and um, I already knew how to drive because the guy from PGH, he le- he taught me how to drive between all the bricks and pallets after work. So I had pay- I paid that car before while well, time was sixteen. I got my license. I think about three or four weeks after I turned sixteen because I already knew how to drive. And what did you drive that car? Oh, a HP Toronto it was. Uh, yeah, I drove, had that for a few years. And that was, did you keep that for a while? Or oh, no, you... I kept maybe a couple of years. And then, then upgraded I, to what? Upgraded to LC Toronto, which was just a yellow thing. It was a yellow bird. Then I, I put all, you know, those flares on the side and made it look like an SLR 5000. It looked cheap, but it just, you know, when you're young. So just going back to the brick laying, you finished the apprenticeship? Yes. And in the end, you were just laying bricks? In the end, we finished our apprenticeship and uh, one of the lads I did my apprenticeship with, I went together and we, I never worked for anyone after I finished my apprenticeship, went straight to work for myself and we got our subbies license, uh, which was a little bit controversial. We're actually laying bricks for builders without a license at first and then the, uh, we applied about four or five months later for a license and they'd come round, the board had come round and seen what we were doing, we were honest with them. We said, look, we actually been building houses. And the house we were actually building was at Marina and it was a circular house. So it was, to build a circular house is quite not that easy, you know. And so he saw what we were doing, he goes, oh, if you guys can take on this, I think you'll be fine. So he gave us our license. Okay, after you've done, you've gone into business with this other guy in partnership, did, how long did that last? Uh, only about a couple of years, two years. And he wasn't working hard enough? Oh, he went and moved to Queensland. No, no, he was a good little worker. Okay, and then you took it over as a sole trader? Yeah, from that? and then I took on my girlfriend's brother, who was 14 at the time, mm-hmm. who didn't want to go to school, so he ended up coming working for me. And did you replicate what you learnt from Moe yeah. into him? Yeah. I mean, was he what? running with the wheelbarrow? Uh, no, 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 no. I used to push, I pushed everyone hard, yeah. but I didn't do to that extreme of running or whatever, but I led by example and, you know, and then we were on percentages, like everyone got a percentage. It wasn't like I was paying a wage. It was like, um, say I would get 60%, he'd get 40% or something like that. So so was that commonplace in industry or was everyone on an hourly um, rate? Was that something worked, you- I just worked better. Everyone, when you, you know, like, when you're on wages, you don't have that motivation mm. as you mm. do when you're getting paid per unit. or So that, it was a good motivator. So you had a sort of a profit share arrangement with your bricklaying staff. Yeah. And that you, you found that that, was, um, that added to the bottom line in your business. Yeah. Because it, everyone it worked so a lot harder. With that, then they would work hard, which would make me more money, and then I'd work hard and make them money. So it was, it was a win-win, and then we could make enough money to start doing some investments. And that's so. Um, how many years did you run this bricklaying company for? Um, what was it thirty-one? I think it was when I finished. But so for fifteen years. Fourteen, fifteen years. years. Yeah, fifteen years. And in that time, did you realise that hey, I should start building some of these for myself? Oh, I did one development. My first development 
it was an absolute disaster. But <laughs> tell us about it because this is people will learn from this. Yeah. So what what did you learn? What what did you do wrong? Well, actually, I didn't do that much wrong. First thing I did wrong was listen to a real estate agent. But um, so I bought a block of land and I was gonna I did this development and. Before I even started building, I went to the real estate agent who said, yeah, we'll get this and that. We'll get this much for you. I thought, well, all the numbers add up. That's pretty good. Uh, we did the development, did everything. And that was during the times when it was 18, 19. I think I was paying 21% at the highest point. Went to Bank SA and they you know, lent me the money that I needed. I borrowed off my parents a bit for a deposit, my girlfriend a little bit, um, and myself and I got the deposit together and did it all and then um, the day we finished the development and it was the first open inspection America it was the front page of the advertiser on that Saturday was America declares war on Iraq and I was like no like everyone dried up no one was buying anything real estate uh, the stock market crashed or went down it's like crash but uh, no one was buying real estate interest rates were high and I just couldn't move the properties. And I just, and you know, I think it was 210 they said it was worth each property. And uh, I think I ended up selling one for 170 and 172. So, uh, and but it took six months to sell. Uh, it took one, I had to just take whatever, I, which was the 170, uh, just so to pay back a bit of debt because it was costing me $1,000 a week to hold them. And back then that was quite a bit of money. So, uh, so did that was that a, a house on a big block? What suburb? Uh, Mitcham. Mitcham. Yeah, it was a it was a not overly big block, but you know what? It taught me everything. What it taught me was how to really scrimp and scrape to make sure you made payments. How to you know you had to work six seven days a week to make the money to make to pay all this, you know, uh, to pay my parents back, to pay my girlfriend back. I had to you know like. Um, and then I lost everything else. So no one lost any money except me. So I lost everything. But when you say you lost everything, it's just that you didn't, you probably got your money back. No, I didn't. Oh, you no, didn't even I get your money back. I, I got a good tax return that year. Okay. So let me just get this in my, clear in my mind. So you bought a house on a big block, you bashed that down. And no, put it, was two a, up. it was an empty block. Someone was an empty block. it and sold it from there, yeah. Okay, so you bought an empty block, which could be subdivided into yep. two. You relied on the real estate agent's advice. And this is a bit of a conflict here because you're paying a. What could be perceived to be? Well, I did inf- my sums on that. An inflated price, but yeah. you got the the agent who was selling you the block to also quote on what the new homes would be worth that you were about to build on it. Yes. There's a bit of a problem there because I've had a similar situation recently and I went and got an independent opinion on the second two blocks and what it would cost to build houses on it and it was much lower and then I went back to the agent and called off which was, and, and he was very upset. He said, oh, no, you, went, you asked the wrong people for advice, but I don't think I did. But if, had you got a second opinion on what they might have sold for down the track. But I guess they wouldn't have been able to see that the uh, America was going to declare, declare war on Iraq either. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. factor in that. Or do you think you just got your numbers wrong? Uh, no, I think they just saw, what was I, 23 or 4, 23. Uh, I think they just saw a young lad. They stitched me up on the day. You know, it was like I was usually pretty good at this sort of stuff, I thought. But I went to the best reputable real estate agent at, in that area. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, you got the best, you know, you should be right with the best, but... So you got the opinion from someone who wasn't necessarily selling the block? No, no, no. From, no, I got it from... I brought the block. Yeah. I was always going to do the what, development. 
privately or through a different agent? A uh, different agent, yeah. Okay. And then you went and got an independent report from a real estate agent. Yeah, I took the plans into the agent. Okay, yeah. and he's told you you would get X, she, she, she yeah. and in the end you could get a lot less than that, so all your numbers were... Yeah, every, yeah. It was, it was a disaster. Just, yeah. I'm interested to know what you thought of that because were you disillusioned with real estate and thought that it wasn't for you and you just need to go oh, back to you? Oh, no, no, no. Like, it's okay to make a mistake. It just you got to learn from it. You have to learn. And like I said, it's like a few other things in life that have taught me a lot of things too. That just taught me, you know, like to be more di- diligent, more uh, not to trust just because they're supposedly the best. Um, you know, there there are people out there that will just tell you what you want to hear. You know, you just got to work it out for yourself. So you're probably a little bit naive on that deal. Oh, yeah, 23, yeah. Yeah, naive, okay. first development, you know. The 23, you still had another seven years or whatever to do bricklaying. Mm-hmm. How long was it before you bought your next property? Um, then my girlfriend and I, my wife now, um, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. (laughs) Jane, um, we, uh, brought our first one, I think we're 27 or 28 years old, bought a very old home in Prospect, uh, just an old dump. And? And yeah, I renovated that, put an extension on it, uh, did everything myself as everything laid the bricks laid the bricks did you put up the stud stud uh, i had the carpenter do the stud work i had a mate of mine who was a carpenter we did it together ran the wires for the electrician yeah dad and i did all the electrical and plumbing uh no i i just helped everyone that i could or did what i could ask them and um, and got the best possible price that you yeah, could get yeah, exactly and then what did you do with that did you sell it or you no we kept that and then we bought a, a rental property around the corner uh, in Prospect, our first rental property. Um, I think we'd paid our house off. <coughs> I think within about seven, eight years, maybe nine years. Um, but we bought a rental property around the corner. Um, I was a little bit disillusioned because we had it for like five years and we bought it for 125 grand. Five years later, I got an agent who said, oh, you'll get about 135, 137. And 12 months later, we sold it for 210. So... You know, you just got to be in real estate long enough and it'll be good, you know. So, so what, what did the rental property look like? Was that a... a villa, a, sort of just a cottage villa, like a single door in the middle with two win, window uh-huh. each side with the big high-pitched roof, central hallway with four rooms and did, a lean-to out the back. Did you have to renovate that one as well? Uh, I painted it. That's all I did to it. I was still tight back then. I didn't mm. see the benefits of of renovating and putting money into it. It was more about just having a property. And, and it sounds like you were doing these sorts of deals to smash down your mortgage on your house. Well, yeah, uh, no, we are just, we're just paying off whatever we did. But, you know, if I had my life again, would I have put it into my house? No, I would have bought more rental, uh, rental properties back and then. And not paid down your mortgage? No. Okay, that's good to hear because I'm like this with houses as well. Every house I've sold, I've regretted. Yeah. Bar none. Yeah. Even the ones that I lost money on. <laughs> I should have just ridden it out um, and and gotten over it and taken it on board and then just kept it because all of a sudden they do come good. Yeah. Even the bad ones. All right. So 30 years old, you're bricklaying still and you've got a few properties. It sounds like you're almost at the point where you've paid off your house. Why did you go into baking? Well, my brother-in-law, who was my bricklaying partner, broke his wrist uh, 
playing footy and he said, oh, we can't do this all our lives, really. It's a young man's business. And he said, why don't we look at something else? And my sister was an, is an accountant. And I rang her up and I said, do you have any clients that are selling anything that you think we could do? And she said, oh, I've got one client selling a winery and I do like wine. But, uh, and the other one selling a bakery, which was in prospect itself. So uh, it was reasonably cheap, cost us, I think, 50 grand. Um, and we picked that bakery up, which was actually in a location that the lease was running out in the next month. So uh, I went down, had a look at it, and I went and met the landlord and said, uh, you're asking way too much rent. And he goes, if you don't like it, go, you know. <laughs> And uh, so we left. So I packed everything up and went 200 metres up the road into a third of the rent, better location, and we set up there. Uh, we didn't know how to lay, didn't know how to bake, but uh, we had a baker that owned the business before it went bad that taught us. He was an excellent baker, just not great at that stage with running a business. Um, he taught us how to bake, and so we went on from there. What was? Can you tell me the name of the bakery in Prospect? Hot Cross Bakery. Hot Cross. Yeah, the hot. Fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Did that include ovens and racks? Everything. And that was the business and all the machinery, everything. So we, the way we figured, like fifty grand, it was like, what's the worst case scenario? You might, you know. But these bricklayers don't know how to bake bread. I know. Well, we didn't. But I guess what we did know is we knew how to work hard. Hard work. Hard work. Just that's the essential. Isn't overly hard. It's just long. It's long hours. The essential ingredient is hard work. You backed yourself into this business. Yeah. On the basis of we're hard workers. Hard work and and yeah and a good product and great customer service. So. But did you go in there and try the pies or before um, you bought it? I don't think we actually did. I just yeah we changed a few things obviously but it's yeah hot cross. Bakery. Hot Cross it's Bakery. Actually, we, we sold it and then the other owners had it for, I don't know, seven or eight years and now it's just closed down. But Hot Cross Bakery, I mean, great name in Easter, mm. but in December? Yeah. Uh, Hot Cross. Yeah. We used to, when, when, after about a year or two, we had lineups out the door down the mall just waiting and we Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's just go back a step. Okay. So, sorry. What? Without giving too much away, why do you think it failed with the previous owners? Um, because they concentrated on wholesale instead of the retail side of things. It was easier for them to concentrate on wholesale than the retail side and to... So does that look like making buns for restaurants? Yeah, or bread for pubs and bread other for places. So you know what you're going to make for that day. And that's their, that was their, they thought, oh, that's my security. I can earn X amount and then whatever comes through the shop is a bonus. But if you build your shop to bring in all the money and you're getting full retail price, that's where your profit's going to come from. And they they just saw it wrong. That's so they were selling their high-quality product for a discount. Correct. Okay, so you saw that a mile away. Well, we, went, we were only in there two months when we first bought the place. And we got rid of all our wholesale. I just saw it as all I'm doing is running around everywhere, f delivering little bits of pieces here and there for no money. And so I've got to concentrate on So you've shop. got transportation costs. You've got – you're selling at a discount. That's the part I don't like. But I've, I've got a friend also who was doing this as a butcher. And he'd be doing it to hotels. And then all of a sudden they'd shut down and he wouldn't get paid. Mm. Or he'd be waiting for 60, 90 days 
And whereas when customers walk in off the street, you get the money straight away. Correct. So you just contacted all the wholesale people that you were supplying and said, we can't do it anymore. Correct. They would have been irate, wouldn't they? I really didn't care. You just can't get emotional about that. There weren't any contracts in place. No, no, no. And then you re-engineered the business on the basis of foot traffic. Yeah. And did you did you have to do any sproiking? Did you put a sandwich board up on out in the street? How'd you get your customers? Yeah, we had sandwich. Board. I think um, word of mouth, Eli. You give exceptional customer service, and you get to know people's names, and you remember what they had last time, or you ask them a question, or and um, uh, you know, be interested in their life as well. It's a good feeling, and they come back for that. So um, we just worked really hard on a really high-quality food and uh, good service. And this is you and your brother-in-law-to-be. Yeah. Or he would have been your brother-in-law. That's, yeah. And this old baker guy. Oh, no, he was younger than me, I think. But uh, he just wasn't a really – yeah, he wasn't overly great at running a business back then. But, but he was an employee of the previous owners. Correct. Yeah, okay. And you kept him on for how long? Oh, no, he was a previous employee of the previous owners. Yeah. But then he actually brought the business off the previous owners, uh, but they did vendor finance. So uh, when the previous when he couldn't pay the bills anymore, the previous owners took the business back over then sold it to us. Right, and he came on board and was still working. Yes. And did he teach you how to bake? Yes. So did you ever get a qualification? No, 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 no. <laughs> Do you, you don't need to? No, I don't think so. Okay. No. And then did you, so you started off with the basics like pies and pasties and sausage rolls? Yeah. And um, bread? Bread. We did everything. Birthday cakes, pies, pasties, um, buns. Um, yeah, pretty well everything. And just built it up? Just built it up, yeah. And word of mouth, so you think... Well, we did a lot of footy clubs as well, like the Kilburn footy club. So you do footy clubs and on a Saturday someone goes, oh, wow, this is a nice pie. Where'd you get that from? The Hot Cross Bakery. So... The word of mouth spread in the area as we sponsor footy clubs. And stuff How like do you that. get out to the Kilburn Footy Club? What do you, what does that look like? Are you just taking pies out so that they can put them in their um, pie warmer for footy days? Yeah, and you but you're not really making any money on it. Oh, uh, I remember we used to sell four for three dollars, four pies for three dollars back then. <laughs> but you oh, you weren't really, but you know you. I mean, like I said, I didn't have wholesale, but we had the weekend stuff where you could make it all on the Friday, Friday night or whatever. And it was not under stress. It didn't have to be there at 6.30 in the morning, you know, like, and it was actually advertising our product being in there. So that's a good thing, you know. So you're building up these connections. You're networking the business effectively. We also used to do the the rosary school, used to do their lunches. They never had a canteen. So we'd send someone there in the morning and they would take all the orders from all the kids and then they'd come back, make the sandwiches, and we put all the pies and pasties on racks and stuff like that. And then we'd deliver it there at twelve thirty. So the kids actually got hooked on our flavour as well. So, um, which was great. As the kids got older, they remembered us, and they kept coming in after school because they liked what they had at lunchtime. So it was all about getting out to the wider community to get that. And with baking comes early morning starts. Yep. Were you getting up? Crack of dawn? No, I you can't do that. You can't? No. I, well, I, the earliest I've ever started is 5 o'clock in the morning. I've never really, I don't know if I've ever done it. Oh, it's Easter time I've done overnight. So who's getting up at 3 or 4 in the morning and starting all the ovens? And uh, We had a night baker and, um, and an assistant for him. So they would come in. Because overnight it's really just bread and buns. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
hence why at where we are now, we don't do bread and buns. So our bakers start at six o'clock in the morning now. So yeah. Okay. Back then, we had people overnight. Okay, I'm good. Oh, I didn't even know that you didn't sell bread. Uh, okay, so then, how long did you have the hot cross? So you had people lined so up. So we the street. had the hot cross bakery for about seven years, and it was right about when Telstra floated, and I, that was the first share I ever brought was Telstra, and I thought, and I started making money on it. And I brought in Telstra too, started making more money. I thought, how easy is this? How long has this been going on? So uh, I started buying other shares and then we actually brought, I started, and then the dot-com was on and then we were buying all that dot-com stuff and because we were making money and everything was going up, I thought, this is the norm, you know, this is mm. the stock market. Mm. And so we made a lot of money out of that and uh, thought, well, let's sell the bakery and let's buy something in the central market that's only four days a week. We don't need to be working six days a week anymore. <laughs> So you set up a bakery in the central market. Yeah, so we sold that and then had a bakery in the central market. And was after seven years, that would have been a great little cash cow, like a great little business. It would have been hard to let it go, but it's just the, the, oh, the, the yeah. working well, hours. We made money out of the stock market and thought we could keep continuously. You thought that was going to carry on forever. We just worked the four days a week. Well, the stock market crashed. The central market was a lot tougher than we thought because we knew we made a good product, but. We made it in another premises at, in Prospect and they took it into the central market each day and it took us six months to actually start to show a bit of traction and start making money. I was only pulling in 200 bucks a week back then after paying everything. My wife and I were on benefits because, uh, health benefits, because we couldn't afford anything. I was just, it was just bleeding me um, until we actually changed a little bit how we ran it in there and put different people in there uh, a girl who was really good at customer service and everything like that uh, to turn it around and we would go in there rather than just baking off premises we would go in there and do what we had to do to build it up and in the end it was a great business did you have to bake in premises was that no, a game changer no we didn't bake okay. anything in the in the central market so what did you tweak apart well, from the customer service with that lady but we would go in there we did that would, make a difference yeah just us you know like on a Saturday or on a Friday night at the end of the day, uh, you know, just giving that customer service that people come back for. I mean, even two years after we were there, we still had people coming up saying, how long have you guys been here? I never noticed you guys before. But the central market is weird like that. It's the busiest short-term car park in the Southern Hemisphere. So people go there, they go to their five, six favorite shops and they get out of there. So while it's busy and there's a lot of people, they all go to this, their regular shops. So it's sometimes harder to crack them to come over to your area where you are okay how long did that last uh that lasted six seven years oh yeah well yeah last about four years until um we made it we started working making good money we started doing really well out of it so that was great and then we thought oh maybe we should open up a shop somewhere else we're actually looking at a maybe organic store or something like that because organics was the new word you know like vegan is the new word um so we thought maybe we go into organics and uh then we thought you know that's in the infancy why should we get in something in the infancy let's stick to what we know um so yeah O'Connell Street come along uh we the rent the, the money we were making out of the central market we knew could pay the rent at O'Connell Street so we thought there's not very much downside. We knew that 
you know, we wouldn't be under financial stress. Why O'Connell Street, though? Like, I, I think of the Blue and White Cafe and, you know, deep-fried fish and chips, all yeah. of that sort of stuff. Why, why would a bakery work there? Um, I guess uh, we thought, you know, that it's, it's high density. Uh, you've got hospitals and uh, universities and um, you are North Adelaide and there's a lot of people come and visit North Adelaide. So we thought, you know, we've, what we learned from the central market is as long as you've got people around – then it's up to you to get them into your store. So we knew we had people. We had the main road, very important, on the in, going into town. So on the right, on the left hand side, going into town. Well, I, I thought it was the opposite. I thought it needed to be on the left hand side, going out of town. Oh, I'm always big on into town. People will stop in the morning and buy and their food, whereas coffees and they'll fill up their eat. car on the yeah. way out of town. Because aren't they all petrol stations on the left hand well, side when you drive out? Out of town, you've tired. You've finished work. You just want to get home. You really want to stop. The traffic's heavy. In the morning, you're tired. You're just woken up. You need a coffee. Everyone needs that coffee, you know. So I've always thought on going into town is more important. Okay. So it was more of a gut feeling rather than research, and, and you started from scratch. Yeah. And you identified that O'Connell Street was the place that you wanted to start. Yeah. I mean, we, we opened up. It was We were only going to open up six days a week and close at 6 o'clock every night. And then after about a week or two, um, oh, people were saying, oh, why are you only closing at 6 o'clock? Everything else is still open, you know? And we thought, oh, all right, so we'll open until 7, then 7.30. Then after about a month, people were complaining that we were closed on a Sunday. They're going, this is O'Connell Street. You can't close on a Sunday. Everything's open. God, so now we've got, you know, long days and open at, you know, seven days a week. And then, uh, like, we used to bake for the... We still had the Central Market then, so we used to bake for the Central Market at night and for O'Connell Street. And we'd leave the front door open to circulate air through the front to back. Then all the uni kids started coming in. And they'd go, oh, can we... They'd smell it. And they'd go, can we buy this? Can we buy that? And they rang me up at home and said, can we sell this? I said, yeah, if they want to buy it, sell it. And within our... Sorry, I missed you. What, What do you mean? Whatever we were baking, like we would bake pizzas at night, bread, buns. But where are they going to sell it? At uni? No, at the bakery. They walked in the front door because the front door was open. So you're not, sorry, you're baking it in the middle of the night for the other store. Correct. It doesn't even come on the market for North Adelaide. And these kids are walking in. When we baked it was for North Adelaide and the Central Market, but we were closed. Right. With the front door open. (laughs) Then the uni kids were coming in. And then... Is this in the middle of the night they're coming in? Yeah, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Okay. Uh, 12 o'clock at night and then after about a month the bakers are going we would turn like three four it'd be exciting to go to work in the morning because we'd turn over three four five hundred dollars in a night and we'd get to work in the morning at like five o'clock or whatever and be excited to see how much the bakers had turned over during the night you know and this is not their job and that's not their job so they started complaining go, we can't we got to bake we can't be serving you either put someone on or we got to shut the front door so I said, oh, well, let's put someone on. So we put someone on and that was it. <laughs> and this has just been a, a runaway success now. Like you can't stop the momentum. It's Well, touch wood, yeah. It's been I know, really cool. I know, but you've got seating in there for, is it 100 people? Over 100, yeah. Over 100 people. It's 24 hours a day. How many people have you got on your payroll? Stuff? 65. 65. How, now... Okay, this goes on to this whole idea of being a really good manager. How can you run a business of that magnitude and you only work Wednesdays and Saturdays? 
I do now. My whole goal was when I used to be a sl- when we'd have dinner parties at home and and have friends over and I'd be that guy at nine o'clock at night after a couple of reds and I'd be falling asleep like on that Baker's Delight commercial falling asleep. That was me. I said to my wife, one day, one day, I'm not going to be falling asleep anymore. One day I'm going to join a golf club, but not now, but I'm going to join a golf club and I'm going to play golf and I'm not going to work as hard. And that was maybe five or seven, five or eight, five, six years ago, maybe. Uh, and so but, I just want lifestyle now. It's all about, for me, lifestyle. But, but talk us through, step by step, on how did you take your hands off the steering wheel? One thing I think I'm good at is choosing good people like a good character person an honest good hard-working person and also looking after those people that do the right thing by you as well and i've got an outstanding team outstanding but is, just, that, is, is that because you're such a good leader i, I hope so um i th- think i'm fair i give them freedom they also have that quality that they want to build a business as well they get joy out of building what what they've helped build. How do you incentivize them at all over and above their alley rate? Yeah, they've they're quite well looked after. Um, I believe that, um, uh, and they get a lot of flexibility. There's one all our staff get a lot of flexibility. We probably shouldn't give them as much as we do, as in like if you've got something on, we try to, uh, you know. Other people say you have to work. You know, like if we can, we'll roster around everyone's needs. Um, okay. So, so um, you know, a common complaint I hear with a lot of bakeries is, I've got sixty-five staff. I don't want to grow my business because I don't want all the headaches of people ringing me on a Sunday saying they're sick and they can't come into work. How do you deal with all of those changes and shifts? Well, m- most of our staff are casuals. It's more expensive to run a business with everyone being casual, but. And they're young, and they're either at uni or, and they need the money. They want the money, and uh, and I think we've built up a really good culture, where the core team is of, you don't let each other down. And once you have that culture, it took a long time to get that culture in the business. Uh, once you've got it, people won't want to let anyone else down. You know, and we're only as strong as the weakest link. So there's it, a lot of encouragement there. A lot of, you know, like if someone doesn't turn up the. Uh, I'll step in or one of my managers will step in or someone will step in to make sure the team doesn't suffer or something like that. So it's all team orientated. So if, I, if I'm working there and I blow a shift, what happens? As long as it's genuine, nothing, I guess. We I'm just, hung over from a big oh, party yeah, the night that's before. Not yeah, that's not good. Yeah, that's not good. So what will you say to me? Will you contact me or one of your staff? Uh, no, I, well, I used to, but probably not now. Um, one of my managers will... Um, We'll probably just sit there at first, you know, if it, ha- it happens sometimes. But if it happens uh, more than once, more than a couple of times, then we'll sit down and say, you know, this can't happen for this reason, blah, blah, blah. And we'll explain the whole scenario, what happens, because a lot of kids don't understand what actually happens when someone pulls out of a six o'clock in the morning shift. You know, who do I ring at 4.35 o'clock in the morning, start at six? And who do I want to wake up at that time? Mm. I don't want to wake anybody up. So we'll all try to get through till eight, nine o'clock till people start waking up and then make some phone calls. But one thing that we do do is some of our bakers know how to serve. So we may put someone from the baking side into the serving side just to help take the workload a little bit and then until we find someone, then go back into baking again. Okay. 
another there's, there's two really important things that I've um, that, that, that have become apparent to me about the way you run your business um, by watching you. One of them is that you don't have accounts anywhere. You write checks out straight away. I don't have an account with anyone. I don't like account. I like paying everything. If a delivery comes in, I pay it straight away. I pay everything straight away. Um, but you, it's okay. So other people would argue, well, aren't you missing out on Qantas frequent flyer points? You pay for it. There's no such thing as free. You always pay for it somewhere. Okay. You'll always get charged. What about 60 days credit that I could be using from these every all these creditors around town? But to go home at night or at the end of the week and go, this has X amounts in the bank and that's all yours. You know, like in three months' time, some people live beyond their means and don't have that self-control. And if you know at the end of the week, I've got X amount, you'll live within that means. If in three months' time you go, you know, Jesus, there's a lot of money in the bank, I could actually get that BMW or buy this or get that. And they all of a sudden get a lease. Yeah, it's only going to cost us 500 bucks a week or whatever. And all of a sudden, all these bills come in, they haven't done their homework, and it just leads to problems. And the money you're going to save from using someone else's line of credit is just not worth it. So the benefits, so in, in your opinion, it's the, the benefits to be had from paying upfront and on time with a check and not taking advantage of all these other payment arrangements that we've invented far outweigh any of the... Um, oh, everyone wants to deal with us because we pay straight away. Oh, how good are these? We never have to chase money from these guys. You know, and if you need a better price, you know, and I'm loyal, so I'll stay with, if you look after me forever, I'll look after you forever, but... Um, you know, you say, look, mate, these guys are doing it with this price, you know, can you do? Well, why would they want to get rid of a guy that pays you on the day of delivery? And, you know, like, it's gold. Every business wants it. And I've also noticed that you monitor your, you watch your gross profit percentages like a hawk. Mm. To the... Oh, well, it's mainly between wages compared to turnover. Oh, if, sorry, if, wages. wages. If that's you what can control your wages to turnover... If you control that in a very narrow range, everything else will take care of itself. Your power is going to roughly stay the same. Your ingredients cost, you know, like you sell X amount of product, it's always going to be, you're not going to lose money because uh, you haven't made more product. It's not like you're throwing much away, you know, you, you keep an eye on how much to make each time. Um, so the only thing you really can control is your product price of your product which is your raw ingredients and your wages and if you keep the wages right doesn't matter how much you turn over you'll always make profit so you just got to stay in that line so you send correct me if i'm wrong a text to your managers and yep. i think there's a couple of them every week and and it i don't think you even say wages you just say the percentage, the percentage like whatever it is xxx.0 they know how they've been for the week and that's their that's their feedback on whether they've had a good week or a bad week well if they've controlled it like if it's hot and it's quiet because it's stinking hot out there or whatever they know well we got to make the call do we send someone home you know like it's nothing to do or um, do we keep them longer everyone's got to work out the feel of do we need an extra person on or do we send someone home send two people home or what do we do, you know? So you got to stay on that ball. You just can't just run your business as if I'll allow a sign for eight hours, we'll give them eight. You know, it could be six hours, it could be nine hours, but look, 95% of the time it's what's written on their roster. So how can you, uh, like, I just think this is a, um oxymoron where you have a bakery but you don't bake bread. 
because then you've got to work overnight and you, the penalty rates overnight are worse. No one wants to work overnight. Why would you want to do that? But wouldn't you have 10 people coming into your store every day saying, oh, I want a loaf of bread? Oh, no, we buy bread in off another bakery just down the road. Uh, but we would sell 20, 25 loaves a day. You know, it's like it's, it's nothing for us. Couldn't be bothered. It's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. It's not. And working all that night shift. Well, because bread, it's been, the supermarket's actually bastardized the whole thing. So you don't get very much for bread. So the time it takes you to make 100 loaves of bread, you could make 300 pies. You're lucky to get $2.50 for your bread, but you'll get $5 for your pie. Okay. So there's so much more profit we made in making pies than bread. We have to wrap up. Tony, this has been really, really useful. Thank you ever so much for dropping in. Um, we might have to do a follow-up on, on all the properties. Oh, yeah. Because uh, you've got your own set of rules about all that. But talking bakeries and bricklaying and the whole your whole life story has been so interesting. So thanks ever so much for dropping by and filling us in on all your secrets. Oh, actually, before we do that, for one, one more thing about respecting money. Can you give us a bit of a lowdown oh, on that? Sorry. I'm a little bit not superstitious, but I do have a – a moral obligation to myself where if I ever see any money on the ground, like if it's someone else's money, I'll give it back to them obviously. But if I see like say five cents on the ground or 10 cents or 20 cents or something like that and I'm walking along, doesn't matter where I am. If I'm in a cafe or a restaurant or walking down the street, I will pick it up. I will always pick it up because I've got the belief if you disrespect money, money will disrespect you. So as embarrassed as I might be when I go to bend it down and I cringe a little bit, I think if I disrespect it and walk over the top of that, it's going to disrespect me. So it's just a little superstition is to never disrespect money and respect it. I love it. On that note, we're going to wind up. Thanks, Tony. Thank you.